0: Is Lori Forrester, The Wine Coach. Welcome to The Sipping Point, where each week we explore the recipe for a delicious life. I'm your host, and each week we've made it my mission to demystify wine one glass at a time. So expect a fresh and fun approach to the world of wine, food, and so much more. This week on The Sipping Point, it's a very exciting show, and we are here and have the honor and privilege of talking to Robert Parker Jr. in his office. Now, while you are one of the world's most influential wine critics. You're also a Maryland resident lifetime Maryland resident so you put Baltimore on the map I guess as far as the wine scene is concerned you started out in the legal field but a trip to France got you bitten by the wine bug and in 75 started your newsletter The Wine Advocate which is now a huge publication and you have subscribers all over the world Um, if people haven't heard of you I think they're living under a rock so (laughs) we need to help them And I want to say congratulations, you were recently inducted to the Napa Valley Hall of Fame. Welcome to the show.
1: Lori, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be on here. I mean, you're right. I mean, I'm uh, born and bred in Maryland. I mean, I was born in Moncton, Maryland, which is a couple miles away. And uh, I, I've loved the state of Maryland. I'm a product of Maryland's public schools, Hereford High School out here in northern Baltimore County and the University of Maryland, uh, undergraduate school and the law school. Unfortunately, unfortunately for the lawyers, I'm, I've stopped practicing <laughs> in, in, in favor of pursuing the grape and um, couldn't be happier about that.
0: All right, so we're all about having fun and getting people to just loosen up and embrace wine as something of daily life. So I thought to start this out, we could talk about your very first wine experience. I mean, the very first time you ever took a sip. And just to make everybody feel comfortable, I usually will uh, share mine when I'm doing events so people don't think I'm a a wine snob or I I came from wine royalty. I actually had some Boone's Farm at the (laughs) drive-in... That was my very first. So I'd love to hear your very first wine experience.
1: Well, actually, uh, no one's going to be very impressed uh, because I I came from a farming family and no one drank wine. And um, so I had no experience with wine until I literally dropped out of – college at the University of Maryland back in 1967 to pursue a girl who was a junior abroad in France. And so that's the more serious part of the wine education started then for me. And then it just grew and grew and grew and the and interest became a passion. And some people would say the passion became an obsession. But my first experience, uh, unfortunately, was not a very pleasant one, was yeah. when when my high school sweetheart, who's actually now my wife of uh, 43 years, had a birthday party, and they served cold duck. And her parents made the mistake of letting the you know, the 16-year-olds have a glass or two. Well, I, I, was, I never listened like rules too much, so I had more than a few glasses and ended up getting just uh, intoxicated and violently ill. And I, and I couldn't even drive back to my home, so... Uh, my my girlfriend's father had to drive me back to my home, and I was throwing up out the window, and my mother met me at the door, and you can imagine she was not happy. Uh, and so that was <laughs> – a cold duck was my first experience, and, uh, and I remember when I was in Maryland, one of the things, my fraternity, I was in a really – Crazy, crazy fraternity called Phi Kappa Sigma. I think they may have been actually thrown off the campus. I mean, they were, they were, they made the movie Animal House look like a Boy Scout movie. I mean, they were just a really bunch of crazy guys. And I was actually one of the more mild mannered ones uh, there. But they used to have an annual cold duck party, and I could never look at that stuff again after, after this, this incident when uh, my girlfriend turned 16.
0: That is very funny. I love that. Because I think we all have those stories from way back in the day. And there wasn't this proliferation of fine wines from all over the world. You know, I went to high school and college in the 80s. And even then, you know, on college campuses, wine was not. As, a, as abundant as it is now, which it would be exciting to be a 20-something right now, I would think. But you started The Wine Advocate to be an independent voice for the consumer, You're the everyday wine drinker. And today, do you still feel that same passion and that, that same vision comes through?
1: Well, I certainly hope it does. I mean, obviously, I've been doing this now for 33 years. And you could say, well, maybe he's gotten jaded and he's certainly gotten a lot older. Uh but I still have the same enthusiasm. And I think it's one of those sort of self-renewing fields of endeavor that no matter how much you know, you're always basically in school and you're always going back to school. And, and if you don't approach it that way, you, you certainly fall behind in terms of knowledge and what's happening in the different wine, wine regions. But, you know, every new vintage, whether it's in, in the southern hemisphere or within the north, is like going back to school. It's a new class. There are going to be new young men and women that become famous. Uh, and start making great wine and then some of your old time favorites that you've been tasting for many years will somehow just fall flat and and make something unsuccessful so it is like always being a a student in school and I, I that keeps me very excited and I also think that you know, I realize most consumers can't possibly taste as much as I taste or, or members of the staff taste and and so you know we're really just sort of like a, a you know we're a buyer's guide, we're a guidepost to sort of say, hey, try this you know if you disagree with what we say about it, fine, I mean that we understand that but because every you know everyone's taste is their own, you know, I always say the best palate is not mine but yours. But we have the ability to go out and taste a lot of wines and try and analyze vintages and uh, reach certain conclusions about things. Mm-hmm.
0: And on your Facebook video, you have a great Facebook page and you, you have some videos out there. You mentioned now that you you have your new investor and, and Lisa is going to take over a lot of the editorial duties, that you have all this free time, uh, that you're going to be doing other things. And one of the other things you mentioned, which I found exciting uh, is looking at affordable wines, great wines under $25. Where do you think right now the best values can be found for someone who wants, like me, to drink wine every night at dinner but you know, can't buy a $500 bottle of, of some rare wine?
1: Laurie, I'm glad you brought that up because I think from the very beginning of the Wine Advocate, you know, focusing on value was always important because the real market is there. It's where I started. I mean, I started as a student at the University of Maryland and we started a wine group and we were going out and tasting, you know, inexpensive Cote de and, you know, wines from Chile and, and et cetera. And because we couldn't really afford to the real expensive stuff. And, and uh, obviously we've seen the really prestigious wines in the world get more and more expensive. But today is probably, I mean, Every year, it seems like the quality of the wines under 25 hours in that 10, that magical 10 to 20, 25 hour range gets better and better and better. Uh, and when I started, I mean, it was, I used to go through just, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of Bottles that were basically unpalatable, I mean you know nasty, ac- acidic, thin, I mean just just totally innocuous or innocuous and today there's so many good values, and I think the retailers obviously recognize that the strongest part of the market is not the over twenty five hour segment but it 's the under twenty five hour segment and so when you say where are the best values i mean i, I to keep uh, just to keep the the advice relatively simple, I think Southern France. You know, again, we go to the Rhone Valley, the Mediterranean area, uh, and because there are a lot of there are a lot of vineyards, uh, the wines are not aged a very long time, and some of them are not even aged in oak at all. So they're very fruity, uh, and they've had a lot of good vintages. Uh, Spain has always been a, a treasure trove for for values, and it still is. Australia. I mean, even though Australia has sort of grown out of favor with sommeliers and restaurants. In the under $25 category in Southern Australia, in, in the Barossa, in Vale, there's just terrific, inexpensive uh, you know, Syrah, Shiraz, is what they call it. Uh, I think also South America. You can, I mean, one of the hottest categories you certainly know is Malbec from Argentina. Uh, Chile's certainly done a great job, not with so much with Malbec, but with Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon and Sauvignon Blanc and even Chardonnay. Uh, California, unfortunately, I love California. But I think they have—they really tend to ignore the really the, the value end of it. You can find good values, but if they're not as easy. You know, everyone's trying to make a luxury one and trying to make a prestigious one. But there are some of the areas I think. Uh, Northern France is, for the Loire Valley, still has some good white wines. Muscadet is still one of the best values in, in dry whites. Germany, uh, usually the exchange rate kills us. But I mean, it's not that easy to find an under $25 German Riesling that is that, you know, that good. Um, but but uh, the areas I mentioned, I think, are, are terrific. And I think uh, if you stuck to Spain, southern France, South America, uh, I think you, you can't go wrong.
0: You know, this is kind of a selfish little question. I'm very curious. You taste thousands, I don't even know how many thousands of wines per year that you taste. And tasting and evaluating wine, I know through my sommelier training is a totally different thing than drinking wine, because drinking is a very unconscious, fun, hedonistic, I guess, you know, if you will process. Do you still enjoy drinking wine? Or do you is it are you always in the mode of work when you have wine in your glass?
1: Yeah, I get asked that question a lot, and and I think it's – I feel really fortunate that I'm actually able and very easily to turn off the sort of, you know, the analytical faculties when I'm in a social setting. And because at the end of the day, I am a consumer. I love wine. I mean, that's how I got interested in – because I I never really liked alcohol that much, and here was a beverage that was – low in alcohol, that it gave you this nice incremental sort of mellowness uh, that you didn't really get out of control, not that you can't drink excessively and and and, and, and be, become silly. But I liked this beverage because it was light and it, and it was different and it did seem to enhance the food and promote conversation. And so I've always liked spending a lot of time at <laughs> the, dining, the dining table. So, um, yeah, no, I, I think in a social setting, what often happens is people – you want to be nice or something say hey well give us your point score or, or give us your evaluation of this wine and i really don't like the, i you know i feel like almost like it's like a dog being asked to perform you know? and <laughs> and i really don't really like that because i just want to enjoy it i just want to relax i don't want to have to really think that unless it's a really great wine or something and maybe i'll think a little bit more about it but but i think there is a time and place for for you know the analytical and the very studious and the very disciplined tastings that i, that I have to do and then there's the other point where you're just relaxing as you say for a hedonistic experience you're with friends and it's just a wonderful social event and i still think that wine brings people together i mean you and you can have a great time and sure you can discuss the wines but i mean i when i'm with other people i really feel like an equal i don't want to be the authority or the expert have them looking at me for an opinion I, i just i'm more interested in what they think and I just want to be just there among everybody else, uh, despite, despite you know, 30 some years of tasting, you know, over 10,000 wines a year, whatever it is.
0: Well, that's great. And it leads me direct, great segue into my next question, which is, you know, when I'm doing corporate events or wine classes, I'm always encouraging people to try to learn what their taste is in wine and, and a little bit of language to describe that, but to really trust their own palate. Because I find that so many people are insecure because they didn't grow up drinking wine like people do in Europe. They're insecure if they like something—is it really good, or should they say they like it? You know. And so, um, while you know, certainly people look to you for advice. I also think there's this really great value of people learning a little bit, you know, about what they like. And you know, if somebody says it's a hundred, but you don't like it you know where are you from there what advice would you give people who want to you know gain that confidence in their own palate and and really feel like they can trust their own taste
1: i think you should never hesitate to speak up and say exactly what you think about the wine no matter what somebody else says, well, Parker gave it 100 or somebody else gave it a huge score. It really is your own palate. And there's nothing wrong, and I certainly would not, if I were standing next to you and, and there was a wine that I had given 100 points, which is the highest score you can get, and you say, I just don't care for it, I, I would have no problem with that whatsoever. And I think it is a question of learning what you like best. Some people like wines that are lighter. Some people like wines that, that are more thunderous and flamboyant and, and uh, uh, you know, extroverted, things like that. And it, we all develop our taste, and the key is, I think as a wine critic, you want to give people choices. You want to, you know, hopefully you're able to articulate the differences between lighter styles and fuller styles and more restrained styles and more exuberant styles of wine. And let that, I mean, I always say that if I'm doing my job, I basically legislate myself out of existence, you know, and, uh, but I'm still around after 33 years. So it probably does uh, go to the point that people still are, are insecure or hopefully there's just so much wine out there that they just need a little guidance to, to narrow down the, the potential for buying something that's just bad. And, and it, I mean, I'm the greatest example of it. I mean, I, I didn't have a fine wine, so to speak. I mean, a serious dry wine and, until I was 20 years old. Mm-hmm. And and then it was love at first sight, so to speak. And I just immersed myself in the field. But it, it, I think it is important to go to tastings. So the, the best way you can educate yourself is to go to as many of these tastings. They're held frequently. You can and you get a cross section of, let's say, maybe. Eight or ten different Chardonnays, or eight or ten different Sauvignon Blancs, and you'll see some that have wood on them and that are oaky and woody and smoky, and other ones that are pure fruit and there's more tropical fruit and they're and they're more naked styles. And there's no reason why you can't prefer one to the other. In reaching that conclusion, you also are, are developing your own palate. And and then if you want to get if you really want to take it and get serious, you say, well, what am I tasting in that wine? Is it pineapples or is it pears or is it peaches or apricots I mean, that gets a little esoteric and. When you hear people spouting these words off, you can start thinking, wow, what an insufferable (laughs) wine snob they are. But I mean, there are these flavors and these aromas in these wines. And so there's no harm in actually, if you find it, say it
0: and i think tasting yes and is probably that for you over how many years of tasting that's a big part of why you're such the expert today is those hours tasting and tasting and traveling which i think is another great thing for people to do to get out there and go to vineyards you know whether it's in france or locally or california because when you actually visit the winery there's something different that you learn that's that's not just in the glass don't you think
1: well i think you i think I'm lucky to have this job. That most of the viticulture areas of the world are also beautiful areas. You know, they're in they're in areas that have nice climates, and and uh, the lifestyle, the the so called joie de vivre, as the French call it, is exists. You know, whether it's in Australia or whether it's in Italy or whether it's France, Spain, whatever. But here we are in Baltimore. I mean, we have wineries and and, and good wineries and vineyards that are, you know, within 20 minutes of downtown Baltimore. I mean, you have Bassignani, which is right off I-83, you have Bordy, and you have other ones. And you should take advantage. I mean, people who are listening should take advantage to go out there to, to these wineries and to taste and ask questions. I mean, I know the principals involved, and they know a lot more about wine than just their own wines. And so you can get a free education locally. Just by and of course, you know your your retailers uh, have uh, wine tastings. I mean, most weekends, I'm sure there are wine tastings going on that they they probably ha- uh, you call them up and see what's being arranged. And this is a wonderful, inexpensive, even free way to taste wines and to, to figure out what you like and what you don't like. And then once you do that, you say, well, why do I like this so much more than that? And then that's the just it's a progressive step by step process.
0: So. I'm a career changer from the software industry into the wine industry and I feel like the wine industry can be a very tough place to to break into I guess and to feel like you're an insider, you know, when, especially when you're coming coming from, you know, I was a hobby wine lover and then started taking classes and now have taken sommelier training, but still it's it's just such a close-knit group and I've always felt like it takes a while before you're really accepted. And being a self-made man, self-taught for all your tasting and your building of this business, do you feel like now you're finally on the inside, now with your Hall of Fame? Or or do you do you feel like you're sort of uh, still an independent?
1: Well, I think just my very nature uh, and living out here in uh, the boondocks of northern Baltimore County, I i always be an outsider. I, I've always been an outsider, and I like that. I, it keeps a sort of a competitive chip on your shoulder that you you, you just you know. I want to prove something. Uh, even coming from Maryland, when I first started writing about wine, people said you can you're never going to survive living in rural Maryland. You've got to go to San Francisco. You've got to move to New York or L. A. or whatever. I said absolutely not. And as long as I'm reasonably close to a you know international airport, I can fly anywhere I want. I, I like the tranquility and the privacy, and I don't really want to be you know you know among a group of the so-called insiders so i've always been an outsider from the very and and you go to you know you take the vintners hall of fame which i was just uh, put in last week i mean I had been nominated six times uh, before I was finally put in. So I was a very controversial choice. Uh, it's funny that the year I was, was put in was also the year that Cesar Chavez was put in. Of course, he's passed away, but of course, he unionized the, the great pickers, and he was another controversial choice. But uh, I think I believe in the independence. I believe in the lone wolf sort of way of going about this business. When I travel and I do my tastings, in, whether it's Bordeaux or California or where, wherever, I'm by myself. Uh, I, I always do it by myself. I don't want to travel w- with a with a group and, you know, st- every night sit down and discuss what we liked. It's what I think, and, and I'm, I want to be independent and uh, pay my own way, et cetera. So I am definitely still an outsider, and uh, I think almost anybody in the wine industry would probably say, yeah, he's an outsider.
0: <laughs> he's- probably one of the most well-respected outsiders. You talked about being on the road by yourself and independent. But I know in doing a little bit of research on your building your business that your wife, Pat, uh, traveled with you for many years and was your translator in French, if you will, and, and a big part of how you've built this business. How do you see her as a wine taster? Do you think women taste wine differently than men?
1: thanks for giving me a segue into my wife, who, who who really is responsible for me getting into this field because she was the student at the University of Strasbourg in France in 1967-68 that caused me to drop out of Maryland to go per, pursue her because I was worried about uh, her falling in love with some French guy or whatever. And as it turned out, I had nothing to fear, but I was still paranoid that <laughs> I was going to lose her. But and she can tell you the story that I, that as a country boy from Northern Baltimore County, I would have preferred to have uh, just drunk Coca Cola when I got to to Paris. And uh, she said, "No, you're gonna I'm gonna take you out for snails and mussels, and you know we're gonna eat inexpensive bistro food, and you're gonna have, to have dry wine, which I had never had." And um, and I f- became fascinated with it, the, you know, the wine. And uh, and so she got me interested. And, and when I went back and re-enrolled at Maryland and started a wine tasting group. But back to your question about you know women and tasting i have i've written this i've said it many times that i think there's some scientific evidence to to back this up as well is that i think women actually have uh, superior uh, abilities when it comes to to not only smelling uh, but also tasting wine and 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 there are reasons i think for that i think women at a younger age are exposed to f- First of all, I mean, the traditional would be in the kitchen with their mother around food products and spices and peppers and things like this, uh, that just by the process of osmosis, you know, they're picking up these smells that most boys at that age have no interest in being in the kitchen around their mother. Uh, And at the same time, I mean, you know, uh, perfumes, makeup, uh, cosmetics, all these sort of things have have a smell to them. And I think women are just much more in tune now. There have been some, I've seen some science that suggests that women actually have more olfactory cells than, than men do, which would, I mean, do they have, is it such a dramatic difference that that would explain a more acute sense of smell and taste? But I, when I've tasted with women, and the greatest taster I ever was, was a dentist in Bordeaux who did some phenomenal blind tasting uh, things. In, and I was with her twice at these tastings. And I saw firsthand that, I mean, she was a, she was a prodigy. Uh, and yet she had never had any formal training. She just was gifted at tasting Bordeaux because she was raised in Bordeaux. She, her parents had served her Bordeaux. But, but she had this incredible ability to catalog all these aromas and textures and scents. And then to extrapolate based on what she was smelling and tasting from a glass when she didn't know the identity of the wine to, to basically nail the vintage and the wine. And I saw her do this too many times and not be just like, whoa. Um, but I think women, my wife has a fabulous palate. I mean, and, and she's very sensitive to things that sometimes men tend to overlook like a wine being too powerful, a wine being too alcoholic, a wine being too oaky, uh, where she will just say, I don't want that. It's too young, it's too woody, it's too this or that. You know, And I think it's the, that women are... I think, inherently slightly superior. But fortunately for us guys that, that dominate this field is that most women end up you know, going into their own businesses or having, you know, getting married, having children, and, and having other interests in life as opposed to, to just being this single-minded, obsessed male that all they can do is taste wine. So uh, I, think, uh, they, I think women are, are terrific. And, uh, and I, I do think if it were, everything were equal, uh, that they would probably be your best tasters you know in the, in the marketplace
0: all right I have to keep working on that <laughs> but Now that Lisa Parati brown has taken over some of the duties that you and your staff here used to do as far as the the newsletter, and we talked about focusing on some of those affordable wines, what other plans do you have with the the time that you used to spend doing that um, for your work with the Wine Advocate or even just for your life? Are you going to be taking a little bit more vacations or enjoying yourself more or just focusing on different areas of the business?
1: Better be careful here, because if my wife is listening into this, she's going to be wondering where all that extra time has been going since you know, I took on these investors from Singapore. And, you know, we're moving all these sort of administrative, you know, editing and, and proofreading uh, responsibilities to Singapore, uh, you know, but everything else stays here. And, um what I intend to do is spend more time doing, you know, retrospectives of older vintages, which we really haven't had time to do. We're always sort of, you know, it's like we're all sort of captured by what's the newest wine or the, you know, the hottest new restaurant or the newest film or whatever. And I'd like to go back and, you know, look at the you know, 10-year-old vintages of Bordeaux's or Napa Cabernet's and, and do more reviews of those and to see how, you know, how accurate – you know, I was, or some other people were in, in terms of reviewing those wines when they were when they were very young. obviously I'm going to focus on what I consider the very best importers in the country on their under twenty five hour wines. I started doing that last year. it was very popular. I'm going to continue to do that. It's something it gives me a chance to taste across the whole field of play on at a less expensive level and at the end of the day, I mean despite the, my reputation as being this guru that picks out all these expensive wines and da da da. I, I am a consumer and I think the real marketplace is that under $25 category. And, I, and certainly I, I want the wine advocate to play an important role, uh, you know, in that discovering wines and ho- hoping, you know, you know, helping people find something from South America or from Argentina or wherever, uh, Australia, Spain, Southern France, that, that is a real great, great buy.
0: Well, this has been amazing, and one thing that impresses me so much about you is that you've built your business from the ground up, and as a business owner, entrepreneur, or whatever, solopreneur you want to call me, um, that certainly is inspirational. And I'm sure there's lots of people out there listening right now that have a business idea, whether it be in the wine industry or anything else they're passionate about. What advice, as you sit here, you know, sort of, you know probably where you never dreamed you would be you know hall of fame all all of these great things that you've accomplished from printing out you know on mimeograph your newsletter the very first time i mean looking back what advice would you give to someone like myself or anyone else out there that wants to start a business how how to get from there to here
1: well, I, I mean, I think sometimes you need a little bit of luck on your side. And I certainly I, I look back and I mean, a lot of hard work went into this and I was, I was certainly the right guy at the right time, so to speak. Uh, but I do think in terms of advising younger people, it's so important to do what you love. Because it's really not a job then, and and while I was my formation was as a lawyer, I never enjoyed it. It just it wasn't something that made me happy. And and wine at the same time was fascinating. Everything about it was fascinating: how it was made, how certain wines you know lived, I mean, almost twenty, thirty years in the bottle and improving, and others didn't. Uh, that whole everything about it just I and so I was able to find this little niche that I loved and was able to make a career out of it. So I really encourage people that if if you love something just passionately pursue it and try and make it try and make a career out of it at the same time probably the most important component to have is patience and perseverance because no one i mean i think the younger generations today when i see my daughter and i see other younger kids uh they you know they're watching too much of american idol or whatever where where people are like overnight successes you know they sing a song and all of a sudden they're they're the next great thing and i think that's not the way it really is. The, the way it is is through hard work and through immersing yourself and using your talents in an area that you love and persevering and being patient. That your time will come, but you've got to put the time in and you've got to be patient. It's not going to happen overnight. And, you know, it took me probably four or five years to get traction and, and actually start making money where I, where I was not in debt. Uh, and that doesn't sound like that long in the scheme of things for a business plan. But a lot of people give up long before that and, uh, or would have. And I didn't. I just knew I was going to be successful. I thought I was good at it. And I just was going to keep uh, doing it. And Because it was the only thing I thought I would love doing the rest of my life. And, and so uh, the rest is history, as they say. But I think perseverance, patience, uh, and following what you love, uh, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful combination of things, and m- not everyone will be successful. Uh, you, I think sometimes some, some good fortune has to come your way, and, um, but if you do that, I think a lot of people will be successful in, the, in those chosen fields. I
0: love that. I think it's Confucius that said, do what you love, and you'll never work a day in your life. So <laughs> that's what I, that's what I'm going for, and it seems like you've already you've already found that. It's been amazing to spend this time with you. It's been an honor and a privilege. I want to thank you so much for being on the Sipping Point. If folks, if you haven't seen um, the website, it's eRobertParker dot com, and online version, and then you have some printed versions as well. Folks can check out and. I think it's a great research tool and a great way to learn. And I love uh, you've got new videos out there on Facebook that people can check out by searching the Wine Advocate. So thank you for being on the show.
1: Lori, thank you for taking all this time. And uh, I'm still – I mean, I'm in a great mood because I'm still celebrating the Super Bowl win by the Ravens. (laughs) Yeah, go Ravens. Okay. Discover the recipe for a delicious life each week on The Sipping Point with Lori Forster, The Wine Coach, each week, Saturdays at noon on WBAL 1090 AM or at WBAL.com.